0: Hi, and welcome to the Family Business Podcast. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and in each episode, I will discuss and explore the key challenges facing family businesses today. As a family business advisor, I'm passionate about helping families to overcome the complex and unique challenges that come from being in business together. So if what I cover in the show resonates with you, I'm here to help, and I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me at fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. You can also sign up to the newsletter there and receive the latest blogs, podcasts and videos directly in your inbox. I would like to thank my friends at the Institute for Family Business for their continuing support for what I'm doing with this show. The IFB is a unique community of family businesses with common challenges, interests, values and goals. To find out more about their work, visit ifb.org.uk. Let's get on with the show. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Family Business Podcast. My guest today is Helen Clark, who is a partner at law firm Irwin Mitchell. Um, Helen, firstly, thank you very much for joining us on the show today.
1: Thank you, Russell. Very pleased to be here.
0: And we are going to be talking about family investment companies today and covering what they are, who they might be relevant for and what sort of considerations we need to take into account when we're looking at them. But before we get on to that, would you mind giving the audience a bit more detail about your role, how you came to be doing it?
1: Yes, absolutely. So, As you said, I'm a partner in Owen Mitchell's tax trust and estates team. So it's quite a broad area that we cover. But I lead the national team's business wealth practice. And I work closely with our corporate law team. So I span the client base and the private and corporate taxes. And I've been practicing for 20 years. So this is my specialist area. My client base has always included family businesses, business owners, serial entrepreneurs, the owner-managed business type. And part of my role, which is relevant to this talk, includes advising on succession planning for business owners and family businesses. And that includes pre- and post-sale planning, or otherwise the transfer of the business to the next generation.
0: One of the tools at your disposal, I guess, is one way of putting it, is a family investment company. And it may be that many in our audience won't have heard of one of those, and for time purposes, I think we're, we're going to shorten it throughout the episode to, to calling them FICs rather than family investment companies every time we, we need to refer to them. So for those who haven't heard of a FIC, could you sort of kick us off by what they are and how they work?
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, as you said, a FIC is a family investment company. So I think the clue is in the name. It's a non-trading vehicle with pooled family wealth So we would always advise for tax reasons that we've got a separation of an investment business from a trading business. So this is a company to hold collective family investments. If it were just for you know one or two individuals' wealth without any wealth transfer planning, then you would have a personal investment company. So this is very specifically a long-term investment vehicle used for succession planning. It enables provision to be made for the next generation with control in place so controlled succession is often for financial education of the next generation you know typically non-tax reasons but it's part of an estate planning process for our clients when they've had a liquidity event Uh a FIC itself is typically a UK private limited company it can be unlimited if there's a low risk investment strategy, and if the client has privacy concerns, we we much prefer the limited. And if they're willing to take the risk, the personal risk in having an unlimited company, then it it can work. And as for the structure of the FIC itself, there's normally alphabet shares, you've got one or two or more classes of shares the founder can retain voting rights or they can be diluted amongst the shareholders and we would go through all of these considerations at the outset of the planning to make sure the client's objectives are met the structure is tax efficient and this then translates into the corporate documents
0: and to to build on that a little bit more it would be i think useful to use a scenario so if we take an example, perhaps, where a mother and father have sold their family business and they've released a substantial amount of cash, so let's say 20 million pounds, what would their motivations be for establishing a FIC rather than perhaps holding onto that cash or just gifting it outright? What, what would they be thinking in that scenario?
1: So it's a pretty momentous occasion for them. They've probably worked there whole life building up the wealth in the company and then they sell it so they're moving from being a business family to an investment family and they will be considering their own financial needs going forward possibly in retirement but they'll also be looking at estate planning for children you know they have surplus cash they will be mindful of the needs of the next generation they will want to provide for them order FIC offers, as well as enabling inheritance tax mitigation, is really controlled wealth transfer planning. In most cases that we see, clients do not simply want to hand over large capital sums without any control. Children might be financially mature. They may not be at the right stage in life when they can assume responsibility of managing large sums of money. They may not yet be married. Parents might be concerned about passing over wealth, and then with divorce or relationship breakdown, the mummies might be vulnerable in any financial settlement. So it's typically coupled with it's looking at the assets. What are the clients' needs? What are the needs of their children? Do they want to start transferring wealth? And is control an important aspect for them? With the use of trusts, you have relevant property charges for tax, And so if you don't have a relief, you are limited as to what you can put into a trust, whereas a FIC, you are unlimited in that respect. So it does provide a very flexible vehicle for controlled wealth transfer planning.
0: And diving into that a little bit deeper, if if we assume this parents have have set up the FIC, and you mentioned before about the use of alphabet shares to help with the, the control within there. How do they function within a a FIC? If you can give, again, an example of... Say, so mum and dad with, with two kids, how would alphabet shares help in that situation?
1: So, for example, if the overriding concern was to retain control and if they decided that they wanted to retain the voting shares, parents might ha- have, say, an A, ordinary share with voting rights. The children would then have cascading down alphabet shares, B, C, D, etc. You may even have a G share for grandchildren that could be held in a trust for them. And then the alphabet shows the reason for having them is that, say, the flow of income can be controlled depending on the individual needs of the children. So the directors have that control, directors typically being parents. And so if one child has a particular need and there are distributable profits, that child can be benefited without having to apply similar dividend for the other children. So it just gives some flexibility.
0: So, for example, parents could have Share class A that would have the voting rights on how and what happens within the FIC you could have child one with a B class and child two with a C class and they can have different benefits depending on their own needs within
1: that. um, Absolutely yes yeah and also if parents perceive that there is a say medium term need for capital possibly by one of the children and they want that need to be met out of the FIC then some redeemable preference shares can be issued to the children because they can be cashed at par value so no capital gains tax so again it's part of the initial exercise in working out what the needs of everybody is Mm -hmm. and what to put into the FIC and then how to structure the shares to meet those needs.
0: Once the money has gone into the FIC what What happens to it? Presumably there there is then a strategy that needs to be applied to suit the needs of those shareholders.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's no different from any other company. Then the directors would take investment advice. They would typically invest using a discretionary fund manager and a broad portfolio that's going to meet the needs of the shareholders manage any risks and they would also want to benefit from the tax-free dividend receipt typically within the company so that there's the benefit of gross roll-up but otherwise the company administration compliance won't be any different to any other company and the directors annually probably will, will assess the distributable profit and decide whether to declare dividends. G-
0: given that the structure is a company structure p- presumably there's a degree of familiarity with how it operates the parents absolutely. have been running a business for years already it's very familiar in that sense it's just the underlying is a investment company rather than a trading company is that absolutely. right
1: absolutely the asset base is different but absolutely that you know a, a FIC is just a UK limited or unlimited company so it's exactly what they used to procedurally administratively and hence why Business owners feel comfortable with the structure because they know it, they like it, they understand it.
0: One difference between, say, setting up a company and then setting up a, a FIC as, as a vehicle for it is th- the a company would generally start, if you're starting from scratch, it's, you know, you start from zero, you might say, well, let's have 50-50 shares and, and the governance structure at that stage is relatively unsophisticated. You might have a shareholders agreement, but unlikely at this stage on a, on a startup business. But if you compare that to a, to a FIC, I'm assuming that there needs to be far more in the way of governance and the discussions around what it's for and why it's suitable before you even go down the route of, of really going too far Um, towards one. Uh,
1: Yeah no absolutely I mean the the whole point of a FIC really as a succession planning vehicle is the control over the capital so whilst you'll be those shares are owned outright by the beneficiary the control is all is all held in the shareholders agreement and the articles of association because they need to be bespoke drafted to fit the client's particular needs and to covers such things as transfer restrictions on death, divorce, bankruptcy. Say for example on divorce the figures are very robust as long as the constitutional documents are well drafted they should provide that shares can't be transferred out of the bloodline. Say for example they can't be transferred um, to a spouse on divorce. If you don't have the well drafted constitutional documents then it's Going back to what you said, you've got a simple company structure without the protection. So yes, you have an investment company, but you don't have any control in place for the children who you are gifting to, which makes the structure vulnerable. If one of them died, divorced, etc., because then how do you buy out the interest of the spouse who's being divorced, or you know, the widow of a shareholder who has died?
0: And looking at it from a perspective of (laughs) when a FIC would be considered and it is it's one option and there's various benefits to it but there's also rules and regulations that need to be adhered to and reasons why people may not want to to go down the route but at what stage should they start thinking maybe we start looking at this presumably it's during discussions around What's going to happen to the business as part of a succession plan? But again, is that a fair assumption?
1: Yes, absolutely. So, you know, the whole exercise that you go through with your clients and we go through from a legal perspective is, you know, looking at what is going to happen to the vehicle. Will it be transferred? Will it be sold? And then, you know, part of that is if it is going to be sold, what planning, if any, should be done before sale? and what is going to be done after sale. And so it forms part of the same conversation, really.
0: The scenario we we outlined at the, at the beginning was was a sum of £20 million. Pounds. What sort of level should families be looking at this? Because there, it is a, a complex sort of structure rather than it being just an outright investment or an outright mm-hmm. gift or something like that. It is 20 million reasonable? What, what sort of level would families need to start looking at this yeah. as, a, as an alternative?
1: Well, there's no hard and fast rule, but our sort of unwritten rule is that it only really comes into its own if the client has surplus liquid assets, ideally, of £2 million to put into the company. So if we assume that it's surplus, they therefore have to have enough assets outside of the company to maintain themselves comfortably for the rest of their lives unless they're wanting to fund the company with a loan and to be able to draw down the loan but in that case the loan is still part of their estate for inheritance tax so it really depends what their motivations are when they are doing the planning so we would explore and there are some clients who fund via loan for example clients who've exited businesses perhaps in their 40s and they want to start transfer planning for their children but they also you know are not at the stage in life where they are terribly concerned about inheritance tax so they're happy for growth value to be going to the children and you know they may consider assigning the benefit of the loan to the children or to a trust for example in due course or they might capitalize the loan and then give the shares to the children so there's lots that can be done and it really depends what the client's needs are. But we would say, ideally, you need to have assets of two million pounds to put into the company to make it cost effective to set uh-huh. up and run. Um, Cash is goal because there's no, there are no tax implications. We can work with other assets. Uh-huh. There is often a tax cost in doing so. Uh,
0: again, using the, the scenario we... we started with around the 20 million that's say a a sale price so uh, over and above what they need in order to maintain their um lifestyle let's assume that they have 10 million pounds to to put into to the FIC. for the next generation in that scenario whilst they would have grown up around that business and the business was successful and would have provided them with a lifestyle it may also be the first time that they've actually come across 10 million pounds in cash, if you like, as as an establishment for for this FIC. And that can be quite an intimidating prospect. And all of a sudden, they're potentially directors in a business where there's a, a lot of money at stake, probably because they didn't want to take on the family business. And the right thing to do was to sell that family business. So what can the next gen do? Or what can parents do to help the next gen with that type of responsibility?
1: Typically what we see I mean there's normally a long timeline before parents would want children to take over as directors and in some cases they don't want them to take over as directors because they don't want the children to have the control but it is an education process so typically the founders would arrange the education for example with the investments with whoever was going to be running the investment mandate so that the children are educated over a period of time that may even be sort of 10 years before they might take more control we can hold sort of educational sessions that would be me and our corporate law team alongside the investment manager just to familiarize the children with the structure to answer any questions that they've got and just to get to know them and to give the informal support really that they
0: might need. We talked about them taking over control, not not being the primary objective. it, it the, the primary objective generally is for parents to be able to retain some of that control because kids might not be at a stage. I say kids; they could very well be mm, adults, yes. but they they might still <laughs> yeah. be at the the stage at which they want to retain that control. But that that will change at some point because death and taxes are the two inevitable things uh, mm-hmm. in life. What are some of the what-ifs? And if we look at death as a starting point, mm-hmm. what happens on death within the um, FIC? So say one of the parents were to pass on, how, how would that impact the
1: FIC? Mm-hmm. If there was a surviving director, then the Articles and Shareholders Agreement would, well, the Articles would provide what happens with regard to the appointment of a, of a new director. The issue with the Ch- with a child with a child being a director is that if they then have significant control over the shares, a divorce court, for example, might say that they are able to transfer capital outside of the company. So hence why in some circumstances clients would want non-family members to be directors, whether it, or other family members but outside of the shareholders of the FIC. But that would be covered in the articles. So it's something that we would discuss with our corporate team at the time with the clients to work out a solution. If the parents are a shareholder, then the shareholders agreement would contain share transfer rights. They would determine what's going to happen basically on the death of a shareholder. So it's a pre-existing contract and then the will of the shareholder should mirror the terms of the transfer agreements in the constitutional documents so that there is no conflict.
0: And so what I'm hearing there in terms of the sort of governance structure of these fix is that as we would recommend with any family business, the the governance can often be informal at, at outset, as we've touched on before, but I, I guess what we're saying here is make sure all mm. of that governance is absolutely rock solid before you go down this route so that you understand what's going to happen and how it impacts on things absolutely. like that.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And because all of the shareholders, the party to the shareholders agreement, it really should be negotiated well at the outset and then they sign <laughs> accepting the rights that are associated with their shares and then it avoids awful scenarios whereby it wasn't addressed, it gets forgotten about, where you've got a sudden incapacity or death of a director or you know, controlling shareholder. So it really is, you know, it's just a false economy not to deal with it properly at the time to mm. make sure that it is going to achieve all of the objectives.
0: Presumably doing it reactively rather than um, proactively is far more costly, far more painful.
1: And you're totally exposed because if a child is already going through divorce proceedings, for example, it, it gets into sort of, you know, muddy waters then as to whether it's, you know, what is being done and why is it being done? Yeah. So really you need to give proper thought to this at the very beginning.
0: And again, um, b- banging the governance Drum here, but I, I think it's such an important subject matter to, to ensure is covered. There, there's the formal governance, the legal structure, and the legal agreements, the shareholders' agreements, and the articles, etc., that that go alongside that. But but coupled with that, do you see families having a family governance discussion as well around, you know, what the intention is from a, a so the same as you'd have a family charter within a a family owned business do you see those within fix as well
1: yes we absolutely do and in fact you know it forms a key part for a lot of clients because it's it's sort of outside of a legal document but it enables them to really express why they're creating it what their vision is for the future and how they would like it to be continued when they have gone so I think it's a very powerful document, and it helps form it helps form all of the, the the objectives to then sort of put it into the legal structure for the clients.
0: So again, taking that example of the parents that have sold the business, they might have a sit down chat with with their two uh, children and say, "What do we as a family want this fit to to represent? Who do we want to consider as family? Who do we want this? What what rules do we want to happen on?" you know, death divorce. That's then articulated yeah. into the legal structure
1: uh, yeah. and mirrored
0: across. I was
1: going to say it's an incredibly valuable valuable discussion. And then it's it's an amazing working document throughout basically that guides where we are going in the process. Mm-hmm. And clients feel comfortable having it because it's it, you know they are able to basically it, it's all of their input.
0: You mentioned that the income, if you like, in inverted commas, from the FIC is derived from profits, effectively. So, assuming mm-hmm. that the investment performance has been positive, what sort of provisions exist for if there's a, a negative period of return, which there can often be in the short term? What happens if there is mm-hmm. no profit as such to to be able to distrib- uh, distribute?
1: You can't. You can only you can only pay dividends to the extent that there is distributable profit.
0: So that that highlight no. that there is an element of risk to this that it's not. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not not a way of just putting money into a company vehicle and and benefiting from that.
1: You can't assume. But the same with any investment portfolio, whether it's inside or outside a company that we've seen what's happened this year, I guess. So we know that it can happen. But yes, you can only pay a dividend. And therefore, going back to the redeemable preference share because you can only declare a dividend if you've got distributable profit, if a family member shareholder had a, had a need, whether it's from income or capital, that needed to be met, a financial need, then the redeemable preference shares would enable the directors to agree for some to be cashed to provide monies for that shareholder.
0: And we keep going over this point, but I think it's an important point to, to keep going over is, is about the consideration before Um, going into to a fix this isn't a short term solution either is it it's something that that you would anticipate to be around for many years
1: yeah it's it's a long-term solution really you know it's if you're putting it in place with a view that it's only going to be going for a few years then don't contemplate it because then you would you know it's just not going to be tax efficient there's gonna be a lot of work involved winding it up basically so yeah it needs to be if you're looking for a solution that might you know sort of 10, 20 years, depending on the age of the children and grandchildren and you know, what you're looking to achieve. And actually a lot of parents like the thought that their children as they are educated and become comfortable with the monies might then take you know, in due course an active role in managing and that it is a business, a fund for them uh-huh. going forward that will provide for them and their families.
0: And utilising the share structure and allows that to be passed from generation to generation. It's not not a a one generation. um...
1: Yeah, the share transfer rights would enable shares on death to transfer to the next in the bloodline, the descendants. If the founder wanted to have a share, say a G share for grandchildren who were as yet unborn, then typically a trust would sit alongside the FIC and the trust would then purchase the g-share from the FIC so that you know a fund can be available for them in future
0: we've mentioned some of the consequences on on death and the key to being able to um, cope with that within the FIC is is strong governance and and good legal governance around that what happens in the event let's assume all of that has been done at outset so we've been very proactive and it's all been done at at, um, the beginning with very good planning what happens on divorce if, say, one of the children in our scenario then gets divorced a few years down the line?
1: Yeah. So as long as there has been no wrongful doing, there's been no fraud in the company, you know, they've played by the rules, then a divorce court won't pierce the corporate veil. Whereas I'm told by our matrimonial partner that they will just trample through trust. Mm. So... Thick actually provides a robust vehicle for asset protection. So whilst the court, assuming we've got all of those restrictions in place that we talked about, can't basically touch the capital of the shares, It will just assess the income of the shares as part of the matrimonial settlement. So what you're doing is protecting the capital, but then the income that that shareholder has been deriving from the share will be assessable as part of the matrimonial settlement.
0: Going back to the governance argument, do do you include non-family in the discussions around those sorts of governance structures that letting them know at outset that this is something that exists this is how it mm-hmm. operates it's for bloodline only it uh, as is that as a sort of conversation that can happen with spouses or potential spouses of family members
1: clients typically don't like to have that conversation <laughs> with other family members In my experience, it's more just their team of advisors. But what it does do is because the um, company documents require and restrict transfer to spouses, and they require a shareholder typically to enter into a prenup before a marriage or a postnup if they are already married, then what it does is it takes away a lot of the anxiety around the conversation of the child who is marrying or married and wanting to accept these shares because it's not them saying to their spouse or, you know, spouse-to-be, I want to enter into a prenup. It's saying that, you know, my parents want to transfer this wealth to me. It's incredible. But the constitutional documents require that all of the shareholders have a prenup or postnup agreements, so I think it makes it easier for that conversation uh-huh. um, to be had, <laughs> because it is, you know, it's not it's not a conversation that people want to, to enter into at yeah. the time they're getting married. But actually, if it, if it's just a requirement that's imposed under the constitutional documents. It lessens the anxiety around having the conversation. Now, obviously, it's different if they've been married for 20, 30 years, and they've got children, and it's a very different position. The founder might take a different view then. But again, each case is just unique on its facts.
0: Looking at it from the perspective of if if this has come about as a result of the sale of a business, that there's been an exit event or or, a liquidity event in that respect there, can the same be mirrored within the fix? So can the shareholders get to a point where they decide actually the right thing to do now is to sell the, the business? How, how does that function? Because it's not a, a trading business. So h- how would that operate going forward?
1: It's not a trading business, but same principles apply as they apply to any business. So if they want to sell down all of the assets, they would do so, pay corporation tax on the profits. And then they would need to go through a company wind up.
0: Presumably that's not as straightforward as it would be to sell shares Mm. in a trading business because it's, there's less of a market or perhaps no market for that. So again, something to go into only when you're really.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Hence the long-term need, but it's basically, you know, they can sell down all of the investments and pay the tax on the profits, but then they've got to get all of that money out of the company Mm. without any tax reliefs, And then you've got to wind up the company. So hence, don't go into it unless this is really what you want to do and you've got a clear vision for the next 10 plus years probably if you think that there may be large significant capital needs then ring fence that amount outside of a company structure
0: in that scenario where they have perhaps sold all the assets down and, and taken the cash out that something has to happen to that doesn't it it's not that's not magically now out of any estate, it's more... It doesn't
1: really achieve much, to be honest, you know, if you're entering into it for asset protection, for inheritance tax planning, it makes more sense to keep it in the structure.
0: This is a, a company structure, it's a legal structure that is accepted by HMRC, it's not something that is you know, using a dodgy tax loophole or anything like that. I know you can never be certain with with anything in terms of tax and when things change. And we would always suggest people take professional tax and legal advice when they're considering these things. But this is an accepted form of uh, company structure.
1: You know, there are pitfalls, you know, HMRC were they did. If there was a, a request for information probably almost a year ago, and HMRC did say that they were looking at FIX, but in respect of FIX in, ex, in excess of 20 million and typically family office type structures. And from what we understand, HMRC are looking at those whereby individuals, founders, have created these structures. And they haven't understood the tax implications from, say, an inheritance tax, capital gains tax perspective that apply. And therefore, there has been a failure to report when tax events have occurred. And that is what HMRC are looking at. So it all goes down to, you know, it is just standard pet for inheritance tax purposes. You make a gift. You don't retain an interest in it you live for seven years that asset is then in the estate of the day so it but it's all just around the structuring of it to make sure that you're not doing anything that could expose the structure
0: and I, I think what that does is it highlights the importance of taking professional advice on that and not entering into this as something that's seen as a quick win or a, a good yeah. way to to deal with things after the event
1: you'll be creating a big problem <laughs> which will there'll probably be a big tax cost to sort out, and we have seen some of those.
0: So in summary on on that point then is, we've mentioned it earlier on in our chat as well, is to, to start this planning early so that you can consider all of the options that are available. Make sure that it's right and it fits in with what it is that you're trying to achieve as a family, and that discussions are held amongst the family to ensure that everyone's aware of of what it means to, to couple that perhaps with some family governance which is not the legally binding stuff but the the kind of morally binding if you like where the family have the discussions about the stuff that might not necessarily fit into the legal structure get that as robust as possible as well before you actually then go and press the button to say we're going to set this thing up because at that stage it's probably too late to if something goes wrong, you've, you've put the money into the FIC. Would, would that be fair?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And again, we have seen cases where clients have just created a company, put the money in and then latterly come and say, I've done this but this is what I meant to do. And then it is just more of a nightmare to sort out, you know, it might take a year for us to set one up, you know, and you could look at it and think, well, I could create a company with companies house and, you know, (laughs) a week or whatever. It's all, it's all of the planning that takes the time. It's Mm -hmm. all of the planning, the careful planning.
0: And if something's worth doing, it's worth doing right, isn't it? So if this is something that's long term, it's going to be of benefit to the family overall for a longer period of time, and again, we we've made the assumption that they've they've gone through the bit where they go, this is suitable for us, because there will be circumstances where it's not necessarily suitable, but that they've gone through that stage and taken the time and been careful with how it's then constructed and the legal structure around it is all robust. That's worth doing well because otherwise the consequences are far more expensive than um, doing it right at outset.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm
0: going to put you on the spot now and say what one tip would you give to families who are perhaps looking at this going, I think this might be a, a good idea for us. We want, want to look into it a bit more. Where should they start in doing that?
1: It's a big fact-finding exercise. So I would always start with the client. We would spend a lot of time discussing it so that I understand their objectives because I'm not just going to look at a thick in isolation. So it's really wanting to understand their financial position, their objectives, you know, the goals for, for the whole family going forward. So I think it's really vital that you spend the time with clients to go through that.
0: And where can our audience find out more about you, Helen?
1: I am on Irwin Mitchell's website, London Partner Tax Trust and Estate, or on LinkedIn
0: fantastic and we will put links to that in our show notes so that people can find you if they're on the web page it can you can just click on the link directly there thank you very much for your time and your insights it's been a um, fascinating chat and and an area of, of great interest so thank you for sharing
1: my pleasure thank you
0: Thanks for listening. I really do appreciate it. If you found the show helpful, please consider leaving a review on iTunes and remember to subscribe to our newsletter. If what I've covered in the show resonates with what you are facing in your own family business, I can help. I provide consultancy support to family businesses of all sizes, so please get in touch if you'd like to know more. Head over to fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. Until next time, take care.